Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast, where we discuss the intersection between sports and cognition. I'm your host, Harrison Hunter, and on this journey, you will be exposed to athletes, front office executives and GMs, and other high-level personalities in sports. As a company, our interest lies with understanding the why behind how athletes process information and make these unbelievable split-second decisions every single play. For the longest time, the phrase instincts have been thrown around to describe athletes, but until recently, there has not been a way to objectively measure them. For the last six years, S2 Cognition has quantified split-second decision-making for professional, collegiate, and youth teams and individuals. There's so much to factor in when understanding or projecting how much success an athlete will have because success is so multifactorial. Let's look at a few reasons why athletes have success at every level that they participate in. One, how physically gifted they are. Is he or she gifted enough athletically to play at the next level? Do they meet the explosiveness, um, their, their strength, their speed? Do they match up with what is needed at the next level? Two, The psychology of the athlete. Is the athlete in the right state of mind when they're playing? What's going on in their personal life? Can they compartmentalize? Have they had a traumatic event happen to them recently? All of those things obviously come into effect when looking how an athlete performs. Three, what is their work ethic like? How driven is that athlete? What is he or she willing to sacrifice to get the most out of themselves? Right? Let's think of grit, determination, two things that described um, and, and how successful people are. Man, they're just grinders. They just get things done. They just, they, they're in the mud and they just keep going. And then four, how technically or mechanically gifted is the athlete? Think of a professional basketball player, player like um, Joel Embiid, right? He only played basketball for how many years before making it to the uh, NBA? So you have the, this learning curve of technical skills or mechanical skills that, in, that are needed to be able to play at the highest level. And as guys or, or women get more experience in the sport that they're playing, right, they get more gifted uh, mechanically and technically, as we describe it. So those are the areas um, that kind of make up an athlete. Where we fit in, right, all the areas aforementioned are measured and quantified in a multitude of ways. The final bucket when trying to predict the success is measuring the athlete's millisecond decision making. Take a hitter, for example. A 95 mile an hour pitch takes about 400 milliseconds to travel 60 feet, six inches from the pitcher's mound to home plate. That's 0.4 seconds, not even half of one second. And in that time, a hitter has to process a few things that I'm gonna name here. What type of pitch is coming? Should the hitter swing or not? Those are two separate things, two separate processes. If the hitter decides to swing, there's a decision about when to swing and where to swing. Also, if the hitter chooses to stop his swing because they no longer want to swing. So let me get this straight. In that 400 milliseconds, we just ran through about six decisions that the hitter is processing, let alone have good enough mechanics to hit the actual pitch itself. That's roughly the same amount of time that it takes for you to blink, which is why hitting a baseball is one of the hardest things to do in sports. Right? Like, let's think of another sport. 
major uh, NFL. Let's look at how professional linebackers process what's happening in front of them. They have to visualize where the linemen are going and then attack the hole that they think or predict where the running back or play-action pass are going to go. That's why fakes and jukes and misdirection work so well. They tell you they're doing one thing, and then we counteract to do another thing. We will get into misdirection a ton in this podcast as we interview guests, coaches, front office executives, and of course the scientists themselves who created this. S2 Cognition measures these processes and, and many more. Currently, we test nine sports and even work with the military. Like I said, my name is Harrison Hunter, and I manage operations, logistics, and data acquisition for our collegiate NFL and NBA teams. Let's talk about a little bit more how I got here. I graduated with a marketing degree from Harding University, where I played baseball. Originally, I'm from Alfreda, Georgia, and moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2016 to further my education at Belmont University, uh, where I received my Master's of Sport Administration. I've worked with Vanderbilt Sports Marketing, Tennessee Titans, the Nashville Sounds, 104.5 The Zone, Sports Talk Radio, shout out 3HL, and even hosted my own podcast, creating over 100 episodes. On this podcast, as I've shared before, we hope to share S2 news, expose you to your favorite sports personalities, and so much more. Our goal in this podcast is to connect you guys, the listeners and our audience, to our experiences in the sports world. Since we work with teams from Major League Baseball, the NFL, Major League Soccer, NHL, NBA, as well as national champions at the collegiate level, we have a ton of stories to get into this whole untapped market of sports that people just don't really know exists. Today, I'll be joined by one of our co-founders, S2 Cognition's co-founder, Brandon Alley. Brandon ran track collegiately at the University of Tennessee. He received his Ph.D. in neuropsychology from Southern Miss and completed his postdoctoral training in cognitive neuroscience at Harvard and Boston University. He has been on faculty at Boston University, Vanderbilt University, and now the University of Louisville. A published author of over 50-plus peer-reviewed papers on brain mechanisms underlying visual attention, perception, and memory, he now specializes in how individuals attend track and process that information in visually dynamic environments. So let's start there, Brandon. How have you been able to link these processes that you measured for over 20 years in the lab to performance in sports at every level? Yeah, man, so that's actually, it's a good question. That's taken us quite a while. Um, you know, for the most part, we knew that um, in these high-performance situations, high uh, rapid decision-making uh, situations, that the brain has to engage in a lot of these processes that we were measuring in the lab. And you know, Scott and I had 15 years in the lab, uh, sort of understanding how the brain operated um, in you know healthy brain and also in pathologic brain and so we had a pretty good feel for what we were measuring it was more the translation of what you see within strengths and weaknesses of these cognitive processes and how that might impact performance uh, on the field or on the court or um, you know in, in the batter's box and so that's what took us a, a you know a lengthy bit of time and, and you know we've been very fortunate to work with a lot of partners that have let us let us test out different um, different tests um, work with certain coaches to 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 understand what these athletes have to do and then go back to the drawing board and and, and develop ways or go to the scientific literature uh, for tests that we could actually use to evaluate or measure these things 
That was my next question. So have you had to change the battery? We call it a battery when you have an evaluation, right? If you take the football battery, baseball battery, have you had to change that based on either team suggestions and that's what you meant by the drawing board and the whiteboard back and forth? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, everything that we've done has evolved to its current state. Um, And so for the most part, our process has been uh, for Scott and I, who, you know, both of us played college athletics and, and played uh, a wide range of sports growing up, sort of had to, we could put ourselves back in that time frame and, and sort of understand, uh, you know, what the brain has to do in these environments. And, and we literally would whiteboard out a series of processes that we thought that, you know, let's just take baseball as an example, uh, you know, what the brain has to do in the batter's box to hit 95 mile an hour or to adjust from fast, you know, fast uh, speeds to off-speed pitches. And so we went through and whiteboarded a battery of tests, and then we typically work with teams to evaluate their athletes, and then we get feedback from those guys. And so the baseball battery as it is today has actually gone through two iterations and and primarily getting feedback. Uh, Our latest round of feedback actually came from a pitching coach um, who talked about that, rhythm that dance between the pitcher uh, and the hitter when the pitcher goes through his wind up and the and the hitter has to load uh, his or her swing uh, and so we developed a rhythm control task to understand how well these hitters could uh, load their swing based on the rhythm of the the hitter and pitcher and so we absolutely take feedback now I say that but uh, you know this is a process because you know, in, in baseball now we have a couple of thousand professional hitters, and so uh, the teams that we work with, the uh, the organizations that we work with, uh, have come accustomed to this set of tests, and it's measuring apples versus apples. So we don't want to uh, continuously switch out um, tasks because then you know the overall score changes, or you know I've got six tests that overlap with the old battery, so it's kind of you know, uh, uh, weighing the pros and cons. I, I think our last major iteration came in uh, in 2018, and, and that's where the battery stands now. Our first client was LSU football. Uh, how, how would you describe how you were able to get in touch? And, I mean, that, that's a huge, huge program right in, in the middle of SEC country. How were you able to get us in there? Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Louisiana, um, and, and I've always been an LSU fan. Uh, but was very fortunate to have a close relationship with uh, Tommy Moffitt, who is the strength and conditioning coach, or, or was the strength and conditioning coach uh, at LSU for over 20 years. Uh, and Tommy happened to be my strength and conditioning coach uh, at the University of Tennessee uh, in the early 90s, and I've had a very long relationship with him. And, and that was just a simple conversation. I mean, Tommy is very uh, forward-thinking, very cutting-edge, and, and I just picked up the phone and said, hey, coach, this is what, what Scott and I have been up to. This is what we're thinking about what do you think uh and he was like hey dude this sounds really cool why don't you come down and and give a talk to our coaching staff uh scott and i uh drove down there talked to their coaching staff uh we ended up uh going back two weeks later and and testing their entire uh, 109 man roster uh and that really began the process of uh uh, understanding these high-level athletes, what coaches were looking for, how we could evaluate these coaches and give them meaningful information on their athletes. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, a stroke of luck and, and very fortunate to have that connection with Tommy. 
All right, so you ran track at Tennessee, and I'm not very knowledgeable, you know, the track and field department, so bear with me on this. But break it down for me. Just how good were those teams that you were able to run for in those early 90s? How, how good were they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those early 90 teams were really good. We won the NCAA championship outdoor track and field in 91. Uh, the four years that I was on the cross-country team, we were fourth, I believe, eighth, eighth, and twelfth at the NCAA championships. Uh, that 92 track team had, I want to say it was eight or nine Olympians on that squad. So really high level. Uh, I was just very fortunate to, to be a part of that and be around that environment in, in, in a good time. Uh, it was a really good time for Tennessee athletics in general. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, it was, it was a fun time for sure. And now you have a son following in the footsteps of dad, right? He's a beast, <laughs> right? Yeah, I would say he's not following in the footsteps of dad. He's light years ahead of dad. Uh, no, Miles is a, is a very talented young athlete. He's now running at North Carolina State, um, which is a, a great spot for him. But, yeah, it's been really uh, rewarding and a unique experience uh, being part of that journey uh, and getting to hit, follow him at uh, high-level college track and field. And your time at Tennessee overlapped Peyton Manning and Todd Helton. Can I get a story of either one of them, <laughs> maybe both of them? Uh, yeah, probably probably no stories to share, uh, at least that uh, anybody would want me to share. Uh, but, yeah, no, that was a really good time. Uh, Peyton was a year younger than me. We were both from Louisiana. Um, Louisiana athletes tended to hover around each other at Tennessee at that time. And uh, Todd Helton was, was my year and uh, actually my college roommate, Tony Cozy. Uh, and uh, Todd went to high school together. So Todd frequently came to our dorm room at Andy Holt uh, in those early years, right when he was making a name for himself, both as a, as a pitcher. And um, I don't believe at that time he was quite yet the starting quarterback, but he was well on his way. Uh, just really, really, again, a, a great time to be a Tennessee athlete. And uh, just thinking about all those times in uh, Gibbs Hall and uh, in the training room with those guys and not realizing you're looking at two Hall of Famers uh, in their respective sports. It's, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's a wow moment to look back at that for sure. That's so crazy. Uh, sorry, I wanted a really quick Dr. Alley lesson, a history lesson. So let's get back to S2. You guys tested how many guys on that LSU roster in 2014 when you first went down after talking to Tommy? Is that the full gambit? Yeah, we actually tested 109 folks, uh, all of their scholarship athletes and, and all of their walk-ons at the time. Uh, again, a, a very fortunate time to be involved with LSU. It was on their upswing uh, when they really started to build a program that would be ultimately become a, a national champion in 2019. I believe it might have been Leonard Fournette's freshman year. Uh, guys like Jalen Mills, uh, uh um, you know, just a really good time. Um, and we were very fortunate to get on the ground level uh, and, and, and really understand the way these high-level athletes think. And so for the, for the audience, just to understand at that point in time where you guys were in S2's history, you were then expected, right? You test all of them. Then you're expected to hand-create reports, give feedback about those players to the likes of Les Miles, Cam Cameron, Kevin Steele, Corey Raymond, and Ed Ogeron. Do you remember the feelings ahead of the time, ahead of giving that feedback? Like, oh man, okay, these these guys are, are the real deal. Oh, for sure. We, I do remember Scott and I got back, um, and we were still working full time at Vanderbilt and. 
So we would go to work and then we would meet at five o'clock and we would hand write these reports on each of these individual kids. They were different positions. There were nine different tasks. We were talking about strengths and weaknesses for nine different tasks for 109 kids. It was wild. We wrote for about two weeks straight and they were all like very specific to each individual kid. And we didn't know you know, we again, we knew the brain had to engage these processes to play football, but we had no idea if we were making sense, if this would translate to what the coaches would, I mean, even if we were talking the same language. So, you know, it was one of those things where we kind of looked at each other and we're like, you know, we really believe in the things that we do in the lab and these cognitive science measures. Um so we're just going to go down there and roll the dice and we're going to like give them verbal reports on these kids. Um, and so it was a little intimidating to sit in a room with those guys for sure. Um, but I do remember, you know, I, I think we had gone over the quarterbacks at that time. Uh, and I remember Cam Cameron turning to Coach Miles and just saying, these guys absolutely nailed it. This would save me at least 12 months of coaching and getting to know these kids. Uh, and I think that that just really was, was affirming and that Scott and I were on the right track and we were actually measuring something that was meaningful. Um, it was still a very long road to where we are today. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it was uh, it was intimidating, but one of those things where it was like, you know what, we're going to roll the dice here and it either works or it doesn't. There's no sort of like hand-waving or magic wanding or anything like that. And obviously it's led to a very, very fruitful relationship. We've been at LSU now for almost eight years. Uh, and we do just about every sport you can imagine at LSU. And we've developed some really, really good relationships there, not only with the coaching staff, but um, a lot of their high performance. One of our one of our best relationships around is with Jack Marucci, uh, who was their head athletic trainer um, at the time, but is now head of their sports science department. And, uh, you know, we, we use Jack. I mean, we, we talk on the phone with Jack uh, almost weekly just about science, about uh, new things we can do. We use technologies like eye tracking and virtual reality and all sorts of things to sort of supplement uh, and push the envelope about what we do and, and try to advance the ball. Uh, Jack's instrumental in helping discuss these things with other high-level programs, whether it be in baseball or football uh, or Olympic sports, and just really helping to grow. So um, it was one of those things that was extremely worth it, um, extremely rewarding, extremely valuable, and, and that LSU relationship is really, you know, has, has laid a lot of the foundation for where we are today. So let's fast forward. Let's go to 2016, right? That's about the time the Cowboys get a hold of this sucker, and they're like, wait a second, what is this? Can you tell me about how that came about? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think Sam Garza was, uh, was uh, you know, the national regional level scout that covered LSU a lot, and Jack and Tommy were really using this in that 16 16- time frame to really help market their kids. There were kids that were undersized like Jamal Adams or, or Jalen Mills that, or Dion, uh, Dion Jones is another great example, who were scored really well on our evaluation, but they were not the prototypical player uh, size-wise or speed-wise or whatever it might be at that position. Um, and LSU was use, using this to sort of talk with scouts about, hey, look, these kids have gifts and skills that, you know, uh, 
are, are, are probably more valuable at the next level than, than physical skills. And so need to take a look at this. And, and so Sam had brought this back to the Cowboys front office and, and we got a call from Tom Robinson, who's still the director of uh, sports science or, or football research over there. Um, and, and that 2016 year, we actually evaluated uh, the Cowboys uh, 30 visits. And there were some studs in that class. Um, and we really worked with those guys. Uh, and that's kind of how we got our foot in the NFL. It wasn't too much longer. I think it was right after that draft, Jeff Ireland uh, from the Saints, who was also sort of engaged in that scouting circuit down at LSU, uh, had picked up the phone and called us as well. So um, that's kind of how that, that NFL piece started. So that first draft we ever worked with the Saints, 2017, they had this historic draft, right? I'm going to run through some names where they were drafted. Marshawn Lattimore, cornerback, first round. Ryan Ramchek, offensive tackle, first round. Marcus Williams, safety, second round. Alvin Kamara, running back, third round. Alex Anzalone, linebacker, third round. Trey Hendrickson, defensive line, third round. And Al-Kaden Muhammad, defensive line, sixth round. Between that class... You had the first ever offensive and defensive rookies of the year, 11 Pro Bowl and all pro appearances, 476 games played between the seven of these guys. That's an insanely productive group, maybe in the history of the NFL draft. Can you talk about the process uh, with that first draft with them? I mean, this is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing to think that that class, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, all of those guys are still playing. Uh, And the majority of them playing at a really high level. Yeah, that was our first, you know, we wanted to go through, and I, and I believe starting in that 16, 17 time frame, we wanted to go through a period of time where we were really vetting what we did um, at all different types of levels, um, not just this anecdotal level like, hey, yeah, this kind of looks like what, uh, you know, this profile kind of looks like what we think this kid is, but we wanted to use some data. Uh, from the scouts and from the front offices to back up sort of these claims that we were making and the scores that we were generating. And so we spent a lot of time uh, that first year, especially with the Saints um, in that 17 class with Coach Payton, uh, Mickey Loomis, and, and Jeff Ireland just really going over every player and looking at vision and how it might fit into what they needed and looking at each profile and, and kind of going through that. So it was quite remarkable that our, that it was our sort of first jump into uh, the NFL draft, you know, full NFL draft. I mean, we had gotten a few hundred guys that draft. Um, you know, and it's, but but it, it, you know, in quite honest, you know, in, in transparency, I would love to take credit for that 2017 draft. But <laughs> you're talking about you know some guys in that front office that really know what they're doing, um, are, are really phenomenal scouters, really great evaluators for talent, and really, you know, I think what's most important, what I've really seen, uh, and is most awe-inspiring from that Saints organization, is that they have a vision for what they want, and they really, really work hard to find a player that'll fit that vision, uh, which I think fits well in that organization. So uh, as much as I would love to take credit, I hope we had a small role in that, but yeah, sure. And, and you know, and it, it doesn't hurt that all of those guys scored off the charts on the S2 evaluation. So yeah, <laughs> that kind of helped things out, made us look good. So yeah, uh, fun time to, to really get on the ground level of that and we kind of went through that process for two or three years of exclusivity with the saints and cowboys to really vet 
the entire process from, from, from soup to nuts about everything we do, the way we evaluate athletes, how we evaluate athletes, the data integrity, the data validity, measuring guys over periods of time just to make sure that these things were reliable, uh, stayed consistent over time. So uh, again, really early time for the company, but really fun and exciting time to, to be part of those historic drafts. So in that 2017 draft, the NFL, let, let's stay there. Who yeah. scored the highest? Can you tell me that? <laughs> I can't give any scores for sure, but, I mean, there were some absolute studs in that draft, right? I mean, you can think of the names that came out of that draft. Um, uh, you know, uh, Trey White scored really, really high there. Um, a couple of quarterbacks that I'm sure you're familiar with scored really, really high there. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, that that was a that to be honest with you, that was a great draft all the way around, you know. I want to quickly cover a couple of uh, cognition questions. Let's shift that way. Yeah. Can you talk to me about the difference between what people think, right, what's what's described as vision and visual processing? Yeah, I, you know, especially in in sports like baseball where it is so visual heavy, um I think terms like vision uh get thrown around a lot and and you know, there's a the big separator between vision and visual processing is is the eyes and the brain, right? And so when we start talking about vision, you're thought you're talking about things like visual acuity, stereo acuity, depth perception, contrast sensitivity, things that the eyes are really um, built for, right? But all of that information is passed from the eyes to the brain, and that's sort of where our evaluation picks up is how the brain processes what the eyes see. So, you know, how, how quickly the brain can process what the eyes transmit and make sense of its visual environment, how we track things in our visual environment, uh, which is, you know, critical. You think about a, a safety that's got to drop back and see the entire field and keep track of six or seven moving guys across the field, how quickly you can search and locate for a target, um, things like, you know, um, you know, we often talk about what, right? And we often talk about where in visual processing. So think about a hitter who has to, what pitch is it, right? Um, and then where is it going to end up in space? Uh, things like trajectory prediction and things like that. All of those are, are what we consider visual processing. Um, and those are the kinds of things we measure. So um, there are a lot of uh, great uh, vision assessments out there and a lot of great people doing doing wonderful things in that space. But, um, you know, I think in the early days we would crack up uh, behind closed doors because people would call us the eye test or the, the vision test <laughs> or something. It's just like, yeah, no, that's not what we do. <laughs> so if we stay at the looking at high level athletes, what kind of visual processing do these guys have to do at that level to perform, right? Let's, those the highest level that these guys are playing at. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, uh, and, and, and in all honesty, it varies by sport, right? And a lot of sports are, 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 are highly visual intense. Uh, when, you like, when you think about things like hockey uh, or baseball, where you really have to be able to uh, uh, track things in your environment um, and really make sense of what you see to be able to perform these motor actions. Right. And so baseball is just a really uh, because, you know, essentially we're going to boil it down to one position and that position is hitter. Right. And so you've got to process all sorts of visual information to tell the motor system what to do. Are you going to swing here? Where are you going to swing? 
are you going to lay off of this, right? And, and so there are visual cues that we need to pick up um, that these high-level guys, it's, it's just insane. We, we, are, we are actually seeing things that have never been reported in the scientific literature. Um, for example, pro baseball players, um, you know, it was once thought that the human brain could not process things that happened uh, inside of 17 milliseconds. So if, if something was presented on a screen for, for faster than 17 milliseconds, the, the, the human, uh, you know, visual system couldn't process it. That's absolutely not true. We are seeing some high-level baseball players that can see things 14, 15 milliseconds and see it consistently. I mean, and when you think about these guys having to now hit things coming at you 100 miles an hour it, from 60 feet, 6 inches, you've got to process that in, in a hurry. Um, Wait, Brandon, how fast is 17 milliseconds? I, that that is 17 one-thousandth of a second. That is seven. So the the typical computer screen or your typical iPad can't even draw things on the screen that quickly. So uh, you know, our, our we have uh, uh, specially designed machines, uh, gaming machines that can uh, actually do you, you know draw these stimuli, take them on and off the screen uh, within those time frames. Um, I mean, just quicker than the blink of an eye. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, another thing, for, as an example, is, is you know multiple object tracking or, or tracking capacity. How many things can you keep track of in your visual environment? Some of these high-level defensive backs can keep track of eight or nine different things moving in their visual environment for five, ten seconds and not lose sight of one of them. I mean, it's just it's insane with some of these high-level brains. And just to put that in perspective, the scientific literature shows that the average human can track about three to three and a half objects. These guys are tracking eight or nine. So it's just wild um, what some of these high-level brains can do. And, and you know, these guys are not <laughs> the average Joes. I, I think it's you know, especially when some of these guys get bad raps because they can't get it done in the classroom or they're not smart guys. Look, their brains are wired extremely differently. They're wired for these environments, these high-paced, very rapid environments to process information, make sense of it, and act on it. In that last answer, you actually touched on my next question, which was when trying to measure visual processing. Can this be done on your standard iPad, uh, iPhone? I mean, can this be played on, on, a, on an iPad like that? Or is this, you know, you alluded to the special equipment to be utilized under that, those, you know, special thresholds of millisecond precision? Yeah, it's just, it's not something, you know, you really want to get into when measuring reaction time um, at any level. Um, or visual processing, uh, you know, your standard laptop computer, um, even just for your keyboard, has a lot of variability. It can have 55 to 70 milliseconds of variability in, in re response time for that particular keyboard. And that doesn't mean that, hey, it's just 55 milliseconds late. We can kind of subtract 55 milliseconds to come up with an accurate time. I mean, it's, it's variable. It can be 110 milliseconds one time. It can be 28 milliseconds the other time. So some of these high-level processes and separating guys who are elite from those that are very good you know, when you're talking about making a tens of millions of dollars of salary decision, um, sometimes it, 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 the separator is 30 to 40 milliseconds. Well, that's a complete wash 
on on a standard laptop. Well, an iPad is even worse. The touchscreens there are they're just not designed for precision. So anytime you're talking about reaction times or, or, or measuring things in a visual environment that happens very well, you need a, a, a specialized machine. Um, we not only use specialized gaming machines, but we also use uh, uh, a third-party uh, proprietary uh, response pad sort of button box that has one to two milliseconds of variability. It actually has its own internal clock um, inside of it and marks stimuli within the device itself and then sends it to the computer. So, um, yeah, and we're very fortunate to have a great group of IT guys who, I mean, these guys are phenomenal, um, that use oscilloscopes, they take devices apart, they use high-speed cameras that, you know, get 10,000 <laughs> frames every second to just make sure that we are measuring exactly uh, what we say we measure and, and with high precision. So, yeah, it, it's a great point. I think, you know, if you're talking about your standard evaluation where you want to measure, you know, 14, 15-year-old kids that are playing sports because you're interested in player development, you kind of got to want to get a feel for it. But if you're at the high level and you're interested in making these, you know, really important decisions, I think you just got to be more more specific than that yeah those guys with the engineers you, you lock them up in that dungeon they'll come up with those answers oh yeah oh yeah so can you give me your favorite story of an athlete you know in visual processing together is there a story that pops out to you of an athlete and visual processing together an athlete and visual processing uh, let me think here do you have one I don't know that I have one, but, you know, I was always interested in, in how these guys are training, right, in, in quarterbacks and what they're looking at and visually are they processor. You know, the first question we often hear is, are they looking at what they're supposed to be looking at? Like, yeah. The first thing is getting them to look at the right thing because, you know, if they're reporting back wrong information, off the bat, you know, well, it may not be a processing thing. They just may be looking at the wrong thing. Yep, yep, yeah. So athlete and, and visual processing stories, I mean, there are many, many stories of, um, you know, I think a lot of times we often default to vision. And so you have guys who may swing, let's just, I'm just going to use a, a, a classic example that we see a lot in baseball, guys who swing at sliders in the dirt, right? And one of those things is that it always defaults to division, uh, to to vision. Oh, the guy can't see it. He just can't see the ball. Yeah. Uh, well, when we evaluate these kids, it turns out that half of them actually can see it. They can see it just fine, but they have these motor control problems or an impulse control problem where it just looks so good. They can't control the motor impulse to swing where other guys really, really can't, you know, sort of see it very well. And, and so you train those guys very differently, which I think, you know, we, we tend to default to training guys one way when that may not be the underlying reason. I mean, I think that's one of my underlying sort of default stories about vision. Um, we also, you know, we've worked with teams with, you know, eye tracking as an example. Um, I think either players are, you know, sort of out of habit tell you what they're looking at. So if a coach is say, you know, defensive back, post snap, hey, what are you looking at here? Well, I was looking here. Uh, you, you, they're wearing portable eye tracking goggles. We can tell you, no, no, absolutely. You were not looking there. You may think you were looking there or you may want to tell coach you were looking there, but that's not the cues you're, you're, you're actually looking for. Um, and I think, you know, another thing that we've really um, 
you know, been able to sort of move the needle on is, is now some of these new ways of looking at eye dominance. Um, and, you know, where where is a kid looking, even though he's using his dominant eye, maybe off because the variability in eye dominance is so different. And so, you know, if you are, if you're, if your eye dominance is, let's say it's, I'm just going to throw a swag number out here, but let's say it's five degrees difference. Right in front of you, not a huge deal. As you move further back, so let's think about a quarterback that maybe turned turned his head to look away and not and using his non-dominant eye, he can be five visual degrees off. Well, I, I laugh with Jack all the time that, hey man, like if you're taking off from Los Angeles and you're trying to get to Washington, D.C., if you're five degrees off, you're going to end up in Miami. So that, yeah, I mean, that's a big scale of things. But just to try to understand some of these ways that we can help kids sort of either train or where to look or how even how to look, I think is we've, we've moved the needle in, in the way some of these kids perform. Um, I mean, we really moved the needle with some of LSU's receivers and the routes they run based on eye dominance, uh, looking at, you know, the way they search their visual environment, so when they need to turn and locate, uh, and really have improved things like drop rate, as an example, um, uh, catch, you know, catch success rate and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of really cool stories, and I think, uh, you know, we're really honestly just scratching the surface. But even to your point, you know, you got me thinking, if he's, if he's got a good brain visually, if he can visually process, but he's still not looking or getting it done, that, that box can be checked that it's not his brain. You know, maybe we need to get the track or the wearable and say, let's figure out why you can't do this or why you're not able to see what you're supposed to read. Yep. Those type of questions, right? It just checks another box off. Yeah, for sure. And I think you also bring up a good point that, you know, I mean, you can have all of the cognitive skills in the world. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best player in the world, right? You've got to put all of those things together. I think one thing we've learned from our evaluation is that we're pretty good at predicting failure, right? Because if you don't have the cognitive hardware, you're not going to play at a high level. But if you do have the cognitive hardware, there's a lot of things that go into it. I mean, you're not going to be 5'8 uh, and run a 5'240 and be a starting quarterback in the SEC. It's just not going to happen. Or if you can't throw more than 40 yards or have poor accuracy, it doesn't matter that your cognition is off the charts. That's just the physical domain is just one domain. You've also got, you know, the psychological domain. What's your what's your makeup? What's your grit like? What's your response to failure? Do you like who you're playing with? Do you like who you're playing for? Do you have post-game or pre-game anxiety? How does that impact? So there's just a lot of factors that go into success. So I think this is one piece of the puzzle that can really give you what is this kid's capacity within that context, but you do have to have all those pieces aligned. When I heard you start rattling off those numbers, 5'8 and 5'240, I was like, you're looking at something of mine post, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago. That hurts my feelings a little bit. All right, so we end this podcast with three random funny questions okay. uh, that, are, that are just randomly generated and selected. So I'm going to go ahead and start and just, you know, answer on your own time and answer honestly. But what do you want, what did you want to be uh, when you grew up, when you were little? When I was little? I mean, I, I think it had to be pro athlete of some some way, shape, or form. I mean, I, I grew up in a time where we were outside all the time. That's all I did was play sports. I was 
you know, as soon as I got home, was at the ball fields playing baseball. If there's nobody to play with, I was at home plate throwing the ball up in the air, hitting it as far as I could, or at least standing on second base and hitting it over the fence, uh, or throwing passes to myself in the front yard, um, acting like I was Dalton Hilliard for the, for the LSU Tigers or <laughs> an Olympic-level athlete. And I think I continued to try to live that dream in college, even though there was no shot in hell I was going to the Olympics. Um you know, and it was one of those things where uh, that's the only reason why I have an advanced degree. It was just because I was putting off life. Like, I continued to think, well, eh, maybe I could be a pro athlete. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that would probably be the, the default for me. You're telling me your neighbor, Kevin Falk, was never around <laughs> to, to hang out and throw the football with? Uh, well... Kevin actually is my neighbor now, but was not growing up. But I did did play sports with Kevin growing up. Um, yeah, no, there were there were a sufficient number of kids in the neighborhood to play, but That's there were often times that yes, I was uh, throwing passes to myself. Yep. Okay, so do you have any weird or quirky superstitions? This could have been when you were an athlete in training or even now. Are, are there weird or quirky superstitions that you have or had? I wear the same exact clothes every time one of my kids races, for sure. Really? Yep. Pretty much. I pretty did, much. It, when there's a bad race, the underwear may get switched out or the shirt may <laughs> get switched out. And... Uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, I try to wear something that of, of, you know, when Maddie races, uh, my, my daughter also uh, competed in college, track and field. I wore her high school T-shirt. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's probably my my one superstition that I, that I hold on to for whatever reason. That's I think awesome. it's going to make them race faster. That. Oh, yeah. Yep. Dude, Alley Kids, you know your dad loves you. All right, last <laughs> question. If you could sit next to anyone that's a non-family member on a plane for a three-hour flight, who would it be and why? Jeez. You know, I'm usually a headphones on the plane kind of guy. I know. Here, so. You know, I, and I really, when I saw this question pop up, I was like, man, this is not the right, the brain is not the, he's like, hey, it, let me do my own thing. I'm staying <laughs> in my own lane. This, this is more a question for for you, who's the, the talker on the airplane. Um, anybody. Yeah, let me, uh, let me think this through here. You know, this could, this could probably go several ways. I always enjoy a three-hour conversation with Jack Marucci because mm -hmm. Yoda will give you more information than you're ever prepared to receive. Um, you know, there are plenty of, of, you know, as much as I love our the sports that we engage in, I am a diehard track and field fan. Um, and I think there are plenty of people in my sport that that could just that I would be really really interested to learn from. Uh, you know, I'm a distance runner, but I think talking with Jesse Owens um, to understand just exactly what he went through in a time frame that was like wow to 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 be as prolific of an athlete as Jesse Owens was in a time where it was so difficult for him to, you know, even just show up at the track um and and just glean from him the sort of the mental side of things more than the physical side of things. I think there are guys like, you know, I mean Roger Bannister even though that's probably a a, a person that a lot of distance runners would want to talk to, the first guy who ever broke 4 minutes in the mile. I mean, he he's a he's a neurologist. 
uh, he, he studied the brain, and I think that's unique for a guy in the 50s uh, who, who, who broke four minutes while in med school and just, you know, hey, dude, what was your training? Like, what was the day like? Like, med school plus running 100 miles a week plus, I mean, just like, you know, I just, just understanding people's journeys. And I think that those kind of folks that really were pioneers um, and did things that I think at a time where we thought things were impossible. I mean, I mean, to think about that, we thought that the human heart would explode if you ran under four minutes for a mile. Uh, and now we have four high schoolers this year who did it. You know, I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, people told you were going to die. You wanted to do it anyway. What, what were you thinking? Uh, you know, and, and just really people who, um, push forth in thing in a time, um, you know, that, that, that you know they were told no um i think it's just it's so critical for us to learn from those folks and um and to gain information from those folks i think a lot of people from history from you know i just uh, i identify with that sport so i think talking with people who were in those positions are just really would be really cool experience fantastic answer brandon thanks so much for joining us today on the s2 cognition podcast episode one will be coming at you next time with scott wiley the other co-founder of the company and paul phillips thanks for joining us cool thanks so much harrison appreciate it this is fun